From MTMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. And so we have to take care of ourselves because if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't take care of the whole universe of people, physicians, staff, and patients that we have to take care of. That's Sarah Holt on striking the right work-life balance for a successful healthcare career. We'll hear more from Sarah later in this special holiday episode featuring fellow MGMA award winners, Javon Bay and Matthew Rigdon. But first, a word from our sponsors. Staffing a medical practice is no easy task, but it can be with the help of MGMA's Simple Guide to Hiring series. Christine Kalish, Penny Crow, and Sharon Jenchansky have teamed up on seven titles, all aim to assist you in recruiting, hiring, and retaining the right staff for your practice. To purchase or preview any selections in the Simple Guide to Hiring series, visit mgma.com or search for Simple Guide in the MGMA store. Are you a healthcare professional who always has the bottom line in mind? Then you're not alone. Join others just like you at MGMA 20, the financial conference, March 5th through the 7th in Nashville, Tennessee. This industry-leading conference is designed to arm medical professionals with the education and tools needed to run a more profitable and efficient practice. Whether you're a CFO, accountant, physician, consultant, or other related position, the Music City is where you'll want to be this spring. To learn more, visit the events page at mgma.com. This year's annual conference in New Orleans gave me the opportunity to team up with MGMA Live and interview our distinguished trio of MGMA award winners. Throughout this holiday show, you'll hear on-site recordings of my conversations with Harwick Innovation Award recipient Javon Bay, Legislative Liaison of the Year Award recipient Matthew Rigdon, and Lifetime Achievement Award recipient Sarah Holt. Let's jump right in with Javon Bay, President and CEO of Mercy Health System in Illinois. His award recognizes and celebrates the success of an individual who's developed an innovative solution. Javon, first of all, I just want to congratulate you on winning the award. What did that mean to you when you, you found out you were the Hardwick Award winner? Very, very honored, especially since it's an award that celebrates innovation uh, in our healthcare industry. Oh, fantastic. Now, when I hear the word innovation, I think of creativity, I think of, uh, you know, almost in, in, inventing things or finding better ways to do things. And so I'm curious about your upbringing, your childhood. Were you always one of these inquisitive, curious kids who was figuring things out? You know, and not so much that. I guess I'd have to say my creativity uh, came forward and grew and developed over having to meet a number of uh, major obstacles in my life. You know, while growing up, I was... Uh, one of 12 children and my father didn't make a lot of money and uh, we lived in a small home with one bathroom for 14 of us so I pretty well learned at the age of eight that if I wanted anything but the basic necessities I needed to to work for it so uh, you know I started carrying our uh, snow shoveling and uh, cutting grass at eight by 12 though I had three paper routes and had kids working for me you know and then uh, and also was one of 10 kids in the state of Illinois that earned a trip to the New York World's Fair in 1964, uh, selling insurance. And so, you know, I think it's, uh, for me, my creativity blossomed and grew through life. 
uh, through having to overcome obstacles and meet challenges. Sure. And that leads me to the next question. You, you mentioned necessity, and I, I think of that uh, quote from uh, Greek philosophy that necessity is the mother of invention. And is that what's occurred here for you? Did you see problems that needed to be solved in the healthcare world, and that's really where this came about? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. And, you know, I think uh, creativity or innovation really comes from, again, at least in my experience, of finding yourself faced with a major challenge um, that you, that needs to be met, and uh, so you have to find ways uh, to accomplish it. My mother, you raised me with where there's a will, there's a way, and so you have to find a way if you want to overcome challenges. And I really think that, you know, when I found myself at Mercy Health in 1989, uh, Mercy was really a failing small hospital. And uh, it, I was, uh, I kind of learned early on that, uh, you know, not until after I started that the financials were in terrible shape. And so I knew that uh, we were going to have to start innovating. And I took out a junk bond issue at $9 million and started to recruit physicians and start new services, but I had to be fast on my feet and convince the physicians of a field of dreams, you know, that wasn't right. there yet. And uh, so that's kind of how, how we got started. Right. Now, let's talk about your career for a moment, because I was doing some research on you, and I came across this wonderful passage that was sent in about you. I believe it was in the nomination for the Harwick Innovation Award. Javon was hired in 1989 to turn around Mercy Hospital. Mercy was a standalone community hospital with more square footage than patients. Right. First of all, I just want to stop. That's an awesome <laughs> quote. I love that. Um, and not only that, but it was struggling to meet payroll. Javon wanted to elevate the entire organization. So based on that information, you clearly, you stepped into something. I don't know if it was more of a hornet's nest or a mountain to climb, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, metaphor you want to use there, but what was that like? You obviously had a daunting task ahead of you. I did, and it was also my first CEO job, and I was a brand new CEO, and, uh, second payroll when the CFO came in and said, uh, Javon, we don't have enough cash to meet payroll, so we had to go to a lo lo local bank to borrow the cash to meet payroll. And uh, then I understood why my board chair didn't want to let me see the financials until after I'd started. And so um, I really did realize that uh, we, um, we had only one of two ways to go, and that was to, I don't believe you can downsize yourself to greatness. And so if we started to cut expenses and so forth so we could meet future payroll, which I think would be the natural reaction, I took the opposite approach and said we needed to grow. And uh, again, I used that $9 million of of uh, junk bond you know, to uh, get started. And uh, there were times where I had to have the employees, all the leadership managers, including myself, clean our own offices, empty our own wastebaskets, so that we wouldn't have to cut marketing expenses of our new services. But that's how strongly I believe that we needed to grow mm -hmm. uh, our way out of the situation that we we're in. And the hospital was $33 million in gross revenue. When I started, it's now $3.2 billion wow. in gross revenue. Wow. So when you stepped in there, and this is the, the daunting task that so many healthcare professionals uh, find themselves in, there's a lot to deal with. So where do you start? When you sat down and started to assess the situation at Mercy, what were the first steps then? What did you assess? 
and how did you then address those challenges? You know, there was very poor court communication. The stakeholder groups did not fully understand the situation that the um, hospital was in. So I really had to assess uh, what these big changes needing to be enacted quickly, uh, how that would impact the stakeholders. So I spent a great deal of time early on educating folks of the specific situation. And it came as a almost hard to believe surprises, but I had all the backup that I needed to show them just how close the hospital was to having to either close or you know, be given to someone else. And they wanted, there was a lot of community pride, they wanted to keep the hospital open and community run. So I really think that um, <clears throat> the key was education early on, and then as we evolved, I always held out big goals for the organization, mm -hmm. big challenges. Uh, I held out the goal of achieving the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award, the mm -hmm. highest award in the United States from the President of the United States. It took us eight years, but we were the first vertically integrated health system to receive the Malcolm Baldrige Award from the President of the Oval Office. Right. What did you have to do to, to achieve that? What were the sort of benchmarks that got you on that playing field? It was really, again, getting all of the staff, all of the employees, um, and the doctors as, as well as we could at that time because they were organized in two separate multi-specialty clinic groups. I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. But at least getting the staff uh, completely behind me. And so right. I would hold regular what I call CEO forums what I would educate the employees, look for their ideas. I got them highly engaged. I know the board, after three years, had an outside group uh, conduct a participation kind of survey, and we blew three standard deviations out of the water. In terms of, I remember the consultant came in and said, how have you convinced you know, all of these employees to believe that they're helping to run the hospital? Right. So I really got them engaged, asked for their ideas and how to improve, they came up with great ideas and add new clinics and outlying areas and so I have to say I got the entire team right. moving in the same direction. You make it sound easy and I know it couldn't have been so how do you get everybody as they say pulling the rope in the right you know the same yeah. direction because obviously there were so many challenges there at Mercy I would think I'm just guessing here but the morale was probably pretty low there so how did you what did you do I mean, did you have some sort of coaching background, you know, or what, what well, did you do to clue? Yeah, I think a CEO has to be a good coach. Right. And, and the CEO has to absolutely believe uh, in the vision. Mm -hmm. And so once you, um, once you help educate everyone on the exact situation that you're in and the challenges that need to be uh, met, um, then it is a matter of ha having people come to believe, you know, that mm -hmm. it can be done and celebrating uh, the various milestones or improvements right. along the way, which we did. But Mercy faced an unusual situation in that our entire medical staff was organized in two multi-specialty clinics, and they were for-profit clinics, the hospital was tax-exempt, you know, non-profit. And um, the, those two clinics were well on their way to becoming what I call a hospital without beds, uh, ORs, and uh, uh, ambulatory surgery centers, uh, urgent care, um, all major ancillary. So the hospital could not survive on simply um, having, you know, a, a losing emergency room mm -hmm. and some patients uh, in the beds. And so that's when I told the board that the hospital is either going to have to have to go on the balance sheet of one of these clinics right. or we're going to have to start getting into the physician business, which was very controversial back in mm -hmm. 1989. And uh, in order to do that, that's where I created this W-2 Physician Partnership model, right. which today, you know, it still has served us very, very well. 
uh, basically I would have to say it's a very, it's, it's creativity and innovation comes in allowing physicians to be under the umbrella of the 501c3 but still be compensated as they would in private practice. Right. It's not in work units or RVUs because hospitals or health systems lose on, on the RVUs for a multitude of reasons. But I needed to develop a model that the health system wouldn't lose money in the doctor's practices, mm -hmm. that the doctors would in a sense earn, uh, uh, the harder they worked, the more they made, just like in private practice. We also had a certain component key for quality meeting quality indicators and quality standards. Mm -hmm. And basically, they're also giving the doctors the cultural control over their practices in terms of what was important to them to help uh, offer the best care possible to their patients. So this W2 partnership model has really been at the crux of our entire growth. I mean, today we have over 800 multi-specialty physicians in 89 locations on this model, and it has stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. When you were building this plan out, this <coughs> physician partnership model, what did you have to, to base it on? Because we love to benchmark things and measure things in healthcare. Did you have examples? Did you have some kind of a case that you could look at to take that to the board or no. to the team? No, I, I created it. In fact, I spent 16 years during my, the last 30 years actually helping other organizations uh, enact a model. I have to say that that's I, I hope one of the main reasons that we're receiving this innovation award is because we did create a very unique model that was both this unique compensation formula that was on a tiered compensation structure. I've actually employed this model in large physician groups to settle uh, arguments between the specialists and the primary care and how they divide up income. But a very unique model uh, in the sense that uh, it, we don't lose money on our physician practices. Um, it, we, we take, it, when we go into a community, we take a number of factors from payer mix to weigh the doctors in private practice to, at the specialist or primary care get paid. And then we feed a number of data components into the software model that we have that tells us how to develop the tier structure for the doctors. I can't protect the physicians from the payer mix, meaning, uh, you know, the level of Medicaid, the level of Medicare, the amount of managed care but I can protect them from bad debt and charity. So the doctors are paid on what's supposed to be collected, mm -hmm. not on what actually is collected. Okay. I'm fighting a cold day. No, so please. Water. Please take some water. Um, well, let's talk about the <coughs> idea then of coordinated care. Let's go a little bit deeper into that. Why did you believe in it and why did Mercy need it? You know, uh, I think patients really I, I just, my own experience and from friends and family, uh, healthcare has always been very pluralistic, uh, meaning that I don't think anybody enjoys having to go to the primary care doctor in one location, give all their financial data, all their you know medical background, then he sends them to a specialist across town, they have to do it over, then if they go into the hospital, they have to do it over. And frankly, poor quality of care is rendered through this disjointed and fragmented poor communication that goes on in a, in a normal pluralistic healthcare environment. <clears throat> so at, in southern Wisconsin, northern Illinois, when you're in Mercy, <coughs> excuse me, you're actually on one medical record, no matter which location you go into of all 89 locations, the family gets one bill, no matter who's treated in what location. So it's that integration that makes it so smooth and easy for patients to receive care. 
as they go through the continuum of care. Okay. Plus, uh, that model has been proven to be not only provide better quality, but be more cost effective. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, your innovations have impacted Mercy Health. You've been talking about that, but it's also uh, impacted the community as well. So was that by design? Did that just emerge through the innovations that you were yeah, creating at I'm, Mercy? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I've always had the goal of meeting unmet needs. I haven't put in healthcare services in any community just because another provider was doing right. it. We do a lot of study analysis to show what particular disease entities are prevalent and what's not being needed. And so, when and I think that's been key to our success is we don't just try to duplicate what somebody else is doing and try to right. divide up a small pie among uh, you know two services. So meeting that unmet needs was a driver. And then again, this drive for vertical integration, making it easy on the patient, the family, to get any kind of care that they need. <clears throat> and so I always used to say it, it doesn't matter where the patient receives care, the hospital, the doctor's office, uh, the ambulatory surgery center at home, as long as it's within the vertical Mercy Health system. Mm -hmm. You know, so as long as it's in that system, that's why we've got, uh, well, we started our own health insurance company so that we could also manage uh, people's health, you know, populations uh, manage their care and make sure that they're getting care in the most appropriate location, mm -hmm. an appropriate setting. Um, and we opened this new $500 million hospital on I-90 just in January this year and the place is packed. In fact, we need to expand it already. And so it's drawing people from, you know, about a 16 county area because the care is so uh, smoothly delivered between primary specialties, mm -hmm. subspecialty. If they need hospital, then when they go home, or if they need to go to a nursing home, uh, it's all vertically integrated. Right. But you know, I want to say we couldn't have developed that vertical integration system if we hadn't had the W two physician partnership model that had the doctors be part of the organization, but still feel they had control over the clinical practice and be compensated based upon how hard they're working. Mm -hmm. Now, final question here. Um, we were talking earlier that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I ran across another quote, I think most of our listeners have heard this one, it's by Thomas Edison who said, genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Yeah. We know in the healthcare world there's a lot of great ideas that get brought up, but they don't always make it to the finish line. So you had a vision, but you also were able to see that vision you know, take shape. So what advice can you give our listeners if they do have a good idea, no matter where they are in the organization, how they can see that, uh, you know, materialize and, and be real? So I alluded to earlier about you have to understand the change that you're looking to bring about your vision, uh, your new idea. You have to understand fully its impact on people. And I think a study done by Deloitte five years ago Actually, uh, they studied over fifth, over 5,000 different innovative initiatives, mm -hmm. and they found there was only a 4.5% success rate. And the major reason they found that there's such a low success rate is the failure <coughs> of the team that was innovating uh, the initiative to actually study the impact it was going to have on the people it affected. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. So when I, as an example, when I went to merge Legacy Mercy, health 
with Rockford Health System about equal-sized organizations. Mercy Health, for the previous 25 years, uh, had been very dynamic, growing, used to change. Rockford Health System, really due to, uh, I, I always put the blame on the CEO and the top management, had not been seeking to growth and change it. And it was a very stagnant culture. But my goal was, how do I bring these two organizations together. Mm -hmm. And so I held out a goal, again, a challenge. And that was at New Hospital, I alluded to on 90. That was going to benefit the people of the legacy Rockford Health System. So I figured they would get behind it and could get excited. And the Mercy, legacy Mercy people weren't really going to benefit, but they were used to change and just stepping up and helping to implement. And that project is what very quickly caused 8,000 people to come together an extremely quick, you know, sometimes when organizations merge, the cultures never do come together. Mm -hmm. Years, or it takes years and years and years. This happened in the first year because I threw out this major challenge by getting the first hospital approved uh, in the certificate of need in Illinois. Uh, the first time it ever happened where we took one hospital license and divided between two campuses, it was only the third new hospital to be approved in the previous 30 years. So I think you need to hold out challenges to your organization, to people. Okay. Well, Javon, this has been fantastic. I want to thank you again and congratulate you again on the Harwick Innovation Award. And thanks for being here at MGMA Live. Thank you, David. And I apologize to you and no, okay. all your viewers on my voice. Thank it's you very much. No thank worries. You. Congratulations. Next up, we had Matthew Rigdon, a medical practice executive at Cape Girardeau Surgical Clinic in Southeast Missouri. His award, the Legislative Liaison of the Year, recognizes a state MGMA volunteer who has provided outstanding leadership, motivation, and education of members through grassroots advocacy. So Matthew, I want to welcome you here today. Thank you. And want to congratulate you on winning the award. Thank you. It's a big honor. It was totally unexpected. I wasn't, I mean, it was kind of a shock when the uh, chair of the board called me and I was just totally like, whoa, okay. So it was great. <laughs> I would think that's the best kind of award to yeah, win. You know, you is. see the people in the Oscars who are in there, they're in yeah. the audience waiting and then they don't win it and then it's yeah. not a good experience. Yeah. So this one catches you off guard because you did win. Exactly. It was very nice. That's fantastic. So just for our audience, um, you're currently the Missouri MGMA Legislative Liaison. Let's just define that a little bit. What all is the job function to do that role, in case any of our audience members want to do that for their own state MGMA uh, associations? Sure. So I think most states that have a state chapter, and I, which I think is almost all of them, have a legislative liaison position. Um, and typically, you are the point person for the state chapter on legislative issues. In my specific case, I our state chapter has a newsletter they put out quarterly and I usually write a, just a quick article, you know, sometimes it's two paragraphs, sometimes it's more, on current legislative issues. Um, Missouri's legislative session for the state is, it, it's kind of, it's fixed, it's only in the spring, it's pretty much January through May, so I kind of have a cyclical thing in my state, but other states are very different. Sure. Now. Let's talk about, this is a, a, a hot button topic in healthcare circles, uh, burnout. And so let's talk about the time commitment that you need to be the legislative liaisons because if anybody's interested in this, they're already you know, pushing up against their time limit sometimes at their jobs. This is additional work. So how, do you, how much time is there and how do you balance it? 
So I, you know, because we put out a quarterly newsletter, I probably shortly before that, I spend, you know, my time will increase as I get ready to, as I'm prepping to write that article. You know, I might spend a couple hours a week in preparation for that, doing mm -hmm. research and just writing the article. Um, and then when I'm not doing that, it's mostly outreach, it's a phone call here, it's responding to an email there. So I, I typically mix it in with my normal workload, you know, as I'm working through emails, I'll just answer those at the same time. Um, but generally I find to just keep myself from, from getting too overwhelmed, you know, I, I'll schedule time, I'll block time off to just take time off from work in general, including my legislative liaison duties and just, you know, find a time to turn off the phone, stop answering sure. emails, and um, I think that helps. And, you know, I, luckily my group has been great. They've let me kind of balance my work with this. So if, if a hot button issue comes up and I need to, hey, spend some time on a day really dealing with that, then I can. And they've been they've been great and very understanding for that. Sure. So, Give us an example of that then. If a hot button issue, you know, hits, Give us an example, what is that hot button issue, and then what is your response and recall there to, to take care of it? Sure, so, I, you know, and it typically, you know, like I said in Missouri, since we have a cyclical session, um, one of the things when it really hits is the session will end usually the second week of May, and so end of April, beginning of May, you'll see the state legislature really start to move on a lot of bills. And so that typically is the time where you really want to be doing that outreach, writing all those emails. Um, you know, luckily in Missouri, we have an executive director over our state chapter. So we, I work closely with her to get those communication blasts out. So, um, and one of the things that really came up in this most recent one, which unfortunately wasn't a success, is we have I think every state but Missouri has a prescription drug hmm. monitoring program that the state oversees. And pretty much this is just a registry. It, it just monitors the, especially the narcotics and the, you know, the more addictive prescription drugs, where they're being administered, that kind of stuff. For whatever reason, the state of Missouri has never successfully hmm. passed that registration do you, act. Do you know why? I mean, is there some philosophy behind it or history behind it? Well, so that almost every year for at least the past five years that I can remember, and I think it goes back farther than that, they've been trying to get one passed. Okay. Um, and every year it just barely fails. My guess is there is some interest somewhere that doesn't want to see it passed in the state of Missouri and because for whatever reason they're probably benefiting it from it not being in existence and so they continue to push. I don't know why it you know with the with the opioid crisis and the really the heavy focus on proper use of prescription drugs I don't know why it hasn't passed. Mm -hmm. Now luckily the count, St. Louis County has one that they've passed on the county level and they've really opened it up to the state um, statewide and so they've let any anybody in the state really get access to it I think I think they cover the whole state now mm -hmm. um, so it it effectively is doing what a statewide one would do just the optics of not having a state one has I think somewhat been a 
a sour note for Missouri, I think, especially those of us that are in the healthcare field and concerned with that issue. Okay. So is legislation in general difficult to pass in Missouri or is it this particular topic that that is an outlier? So this one has been particularly difficult, okay. but my answer to you would be legislation, my experience with it on almost any level and in almost any state, you know, when I first got into legislative issues and doing some advocacy and that kind of work, most of the, the seasoned people, the veterans would tell me, don't expect to get a bill passed in the first year. Hmm. It's a three to five year process, usually bare minimum. And my experience has kind of bore that out. Uh, before I came to the group, I, the practice I'm with now, I worked for a large not-for-profit out of Cape Girardeau. I was their um, head of advocacy and also did some operations work for them. But I'm, and I'm, I was even more involved with directly going to the Capitol and directly interacting with legislators and um, that I spent four years in that role, and so that's really where I got my feet wet in the right. legislative issue, and the legislative area. And so I really um, found when we were pushing bills, it's building that base, finding that champion who's going to push that piece of legislation and help you get it through. That's easily a three to five year process. You just have to be prepared for that. Sure. And you know, um, maybe it's a little different in states with a longer legislative session. In Missouri, you know, you basically got five months to get it pushed through. So, yeah. So, you have an insider's view, and I'm personally curious, and I'm sure many of our uh, listeners are, um, you know, they're curious too. What is it? What is myth, and what is reality that we we hear uh, uh, about politicians and about the legislative process? So, kind of separate what's the truth from the myth there, because you're in there working with them. They are. Uh, human beings, so yeah, you know, you're connecting with them on some level. So I'm, I'm curious what that communication is like, and then and then what is true to form, like what we hear through the news services, and then what's maybe exaggerated once you actually get to know a person and sit down and talk to them. So, and maybe other other people who work in the legislative area have different experiences. My experience has always been real positive with the the representatives and senators in Missouri, you know, it's very easy to form a relationship with them. I find that they're good people. One of the things I think they struggle with is I'm just one voice in a giant sea of voices. They're getting hit right. from every direction. And, you know, you've got everyone in their office trying to influence them. And I think that can be a very difficult position to be in because oftentimes, you know, the easy issues, the issues that are pretty black and white, where everybody's going to fall on one side, those are those are fairly easy to decide. But you you've got issues, you know, where where both sides have pretty strong arguments, and they're getting hit from both directions. That can be very hard mm -hmm. to make a decision on an issue like that. And I mean, and then they've also always got to weigh the financial issue. You know, there's you're talking about taxpayer dollars and how to best spend those and you know everybody wishes they could have their program the most but you would be surprised if you if you ever get involved in a state budgetary process how quickly 
those giant budgets that the states have quickly they'll just disappear mm -hmm. and they'll just be spent and it's you know so I, I, I don't envy them but I, I respect them for the really hard decisions they've made but I've always found that um, at least my experience mm -hmm. has been in my state that our representatives and senators are, are good people and they're just trying to do the best and they're faced with right. very difficult decisions. When you're meeting with the office of this representative, are you actually meeting with the representative or are you meeting with some of their staff or just trying to give an idea for our audience yeah. what they might be in store for? So my best advice on, you know, so one of the things I've found is if you're a constituent, um, you'll find, especially on the state level in Missouri, it's very easy to meet with your actual representative or senator. They usually make time for their constituents. Those are the people that have put them in the office. You know, they'll get bombarded by advocates and lobbyists and representatives all day. And really, what they really, probably in, in many regards, what they don't hear from very often, except on, on election day, is their constituents, the people who actually voted to put them in office. And so I have found they're usually very open to that. So my advice, they're very busy people, but get a hold of their assistant, make an appointment, they'll make time to see you. Um, and so most of the time, that's how, when, when I approach them, that's how I approach them. I go to their assistant, I say, I want 20 minutes of representative so-and-so's time. I get put on their calendar, and then I make sure I'm there, I'm five minutes early, I don't want to waste their time, but uh, and respect their time, but. On the state level, yes, it's usually pretty easy, and, and I've been told, I'm, I'm not as experienced on the federal level, I've been right. told that things work um, in a very similar manner on the federal level. Right. Um, but make a good impression at, with their assistant and build that relationship with the assistant. Um, that is a great piece of just practical advice because you'll find you get put on the calendar much easier right. if you if you're respectful to that assistant because that's just usually your doorway mm -hmm. now this is a a role that has great importance i mean it has an impact if it hits the right way you get things done you inform uh your peers of what's going on so there's great importance so what do you see as your you know, the greatest responsibility in this role. So, to kind of go back to what I just said, you know, getting, we're all extremely busy, you know, most practice administrators and healthcare executives are extremely busy. Mm -hmm. So, if you can get that information about those hot topics and be that filter and kind of that, um, that voice that, hey, here are these, here's the things that I really looked at and, and you know, I'm hearing from people that talk to me and say these are the hot button issues. Here's the short two sentence paragraph blurb on it, and then make calls for action. Right. You know, say, hey, figure out who your representative is. Here's the website. Just type in your zip code, it'll tell you. Write a letter, make a phone call. Um, because my experience has been in the grassroots thing. If you want to make a movement, if you want to get something to move, a piece of legislation, you need to get the constituents of their and contacting their respective representatives or senators and saying, hey, we want to see this happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most healthcare executives and administrators, um, you know, you reach out to those representatives, they can't be experts on everything. They have to rely on experts in their, mm -hmm. in their districts. And so 
you know, start those relationships early, reach out to them, um, establish yourself as that voice, hey, in this area, this is something you want to, I can, I can talk to you about this, I live this every day, let me tell you about my experience. And you'll find, I've found most representatives are very attentive and will try to, you know, to the best of their ability, make an impact in those areas based off your, your what the information you give them. Right. We're coming up on time, so I have time for one more question. Sure. And this is a call to action for our audience. Uh, what steps can they take if they are interested or even want to just do some preliminary research? Where would they start if they wanted to? Uh, assume this role or look at achieving this role in their own uh, state MGMA? Sure, so I would give two piece of, pieces of advice on there. Um, first, if you're not a member of your state chapter, go become a member of your state chapter. Find out who your current legislative liaison is. I would think for most states they're going to have one already. Begin to communicate with that person, you know, start to Communicate with them, develop that relationship, get information from them, be willing to help. You know, if they say, hey, it would really help to write a letter to this representative and you're a constituent, do so. Be part of that. And then, um, you know, really that's how I kind of eventually became the legislative liaison. I worked with the guy who, who was my predecessor in that role. And then I reached out to our executive director and said, I want to, I'd like to step into this role. And so that's how I got it. The second piece is MGMA National, I can't speak highly enough of their government affairs office. Get involved. Um, if you're not aware of, for example, the pre-cert issue, the pre-authorization issue that the government affairs office is currently working on, um, you and I know that affects a whole lot of us. They, they've got a bill. It's been written. They could use some help getting it passed, I think. All of them, Anders, Drew, all of them can, could help us, and they really do lead the charge on there. Um, a lot of what I do is getting information from them and making sure the people in my state chapter see it. So I, I highly recommend reaching out. Um, they're great people, and they, they do an awesome job for us on the national level, on the federal right. level. Sure. Well, Matthew, thank you so much. Absolutely. Congratulations on winning thank the you. Legislative Liaison Award, and keep doing great work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You got it's it. great. Last but certainly not least, I sat down with Sarah Holt, a healthcare consultant also in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and a professor and instructor at St. Louis University in Southeast Missouri State. She's this year's recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award, which recognizes and celebrates the success of an individual who has inspired and empowered other leaders through significant contributions to the healthcare industry. Does that sound like you, Sarah? Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to I want to congratulate you again Thank on you. winning this. I mean, that just shows the kind of work and passion that you've had for healthcare and for its people. Thank you. Yes. You're very yeah. So, I want to go back then. Let's look back over your career for a moment. What was the initial spark that led you to get into healthcare in the first place? Well, I will say though, 
I'm very honored and humbled well, yeah. by receiving this award. And I got into healthcare through a very circuitous route, not the normal way that most people get into healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, I had uh, a group of surgeons approach me. I was actually counseling at the time, I was doing counseling, and they approached me and asked me if I would consider um, doing their administrative work. And honestly, I didn't even know what that meant. Okay. I'd been in healthcare for 30 years. Sure. And so I said, I don't even understand what you're about. And so you must help me out here. They said, well, we trust you. And we know that you know business. And because we've seen your past experience in business, mm -hmm. and we know you know people and work with people well, and that's the reason they asked me to become their administrator. Mm -hmm. um, I was very honored by that, and quite honestly, they doubled my salary. So okay. what am I going to say? I was a single <laughs> mom at the time, and so I uh, was very eager to get into healthcare, and but I felt very unprepared. Uh, yes, it's business, uh, but it's a different kind of business than anything I had ever done before. So my first real step was to join MGMA. And so I have been very fortunate uh, to have MGMA as my professional home for 30 years. And through MGMA, I um, joined ACMPE, uh, became a fellow, and so on. So that has been the route for my getting into healthcare. And uh, it's been important to me to really um, look at healthcare in a very serious way. So that's how I got into healthcare. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you've been in healthcare for more than 30 years. Yes. So I'm curious about this then. What has changed the most? in the healthcare landscape over those 30 years? And then what's remained the same? You've kind of seen it, you know, over a, a long stretch of time there. Indeed. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one of the things that I can tell you that has changed the most is women in healthcare. Okay. A huge number of women are now in healthcare. Um, now, is this across the board? Yes, at, actually, at all levels? It is, okay. with physicians as well. Mm -hmm. and with providers and so on. Um, the second thing that I would say has changed is the rate of change. So the rate of change is infinitely quicker mm -hmm. than it used to be. So that's one of the things that has um, has really stayed the same. And uh, uh, changed. changed. Yeah. One of the things that has stayed the same is the fact that we have a non-system. And almost everyone agrees with that fact that we have a non-system in healthcare. And so one of the things, I'll, I'll give you three examples of okay. that that are just, and it's stayed the same and sure. it's not good oh, yeah. that it's stayed the same. Uh, one of the things is that we have people who don't have access to care. Okay. And that's very bad. Uh, so we really can't do much until we have people with access to care. I will tell you that I um, attended a national conference 
early in my career as a young woman and I heard C. Eric Koop speak. Sure. And most of the people listening, the Surgeon, Surgeon General, General yep. that's right, most of the people listening have never even heard of him. <laughs> but he said something that really stuck with me at that time. And unfortunately, it is still the same today. He said, the problem with healthcare in the United States, and there were problems then, sure. <laughs> of course, uh, is that we have greed on the part of everyone in healthcare. Okay. And he said the greed goes across the board. Hmm. He said everyone wants access to care, easy access, they want high quality, and they want low cost. And he said pick two of those. <laughs> you can have two, yeah. but you cannot in any system have all three. So I've always thought about that and, and have related that to my students. Because unfortunately, we have the same situation in healthcare now that we had 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that I see that hasn't changed is that physicians who go into healthcare take on a huge financial burden yeah. to become a physician. Mm -hmm. Now, they take on that burden as if we are in a free market system in healthcare. We don't have a free market system in healthcare. They take the burden, but then they get out to practice with all that debt, and they're told how much they can be paid for the services they deliver, and sometimes what they're paid for the services don't even cover the cost of delivering the service. Another thing that has stayed the same is access to drugs. Mm -hmm. Drugs are so highly expensive. They were expensive then, but they're even more expensive now. Um, we have very effective drugs in the United States, but unfortunately, the drugs that are most effective are the highest. Mm -hmm. So that has not changed and something that really needs to change. Right. Now, this next question, this may surprise you, but when we talked to your peers and the people that know you in the industry, they kept talking about your enthusiasm and passion about healthcare. Uh, now, it's pretty obvious to our audience that that is, that is you know, how you're wired. And just want to know, how do you keep that passion? You've been in it more than 30 years, but you get up each and every day and you want to make change. You want to see something happen in healthcare, and you can see that passion through you. So what is it? Well, you know, I, I really am just an enthusiastic person, and I'm fortunate to have a lot of energy. And so I just try to uh, really look at the energy and, and try to focus it in the right way. Um, I, I'm excited about working with people, I work with physicians, I work with staff, um, I try to help develop staff, I try to make life easier for, for physicians and providers. This is not easy for providers. Um, and I, so I try everything I could do to streamline their process. And I have always tried to think about can someone at a lower level of training do that job? Mm -hmm. And if they can, then I want to offload that from physicians to someone else 
who can do that job so that physicians can concentrate on the the real hard work that they're trained to do rather than doing menial tasks and a lot of physicians have to do menial tasks so I like to develop staff uh, in healthcare we mainly work with female staff and I enjoy uh, developing staff and helping females understand that they, even though they're not trained professionally, uh, some staff have gone to college, some have not, but they are in a professional setting and they have a professional role to fill, and I like that. Uh, I also like helping patients mm -hmm. because it's such a complex field and when you and if you've ever if you've ever been on the receiving I, I'm now a participant in receiving health care okay. then you know how difficult it mm -hmm. is for patients to navigate through the quote non-system right. and so I like helping patients as yeah. well yeah you've talked about complexity a number of times yes and just do we make Healthcare more complex than it needs to be. That yeah. is a very easy, easy <laughs> answer, and that is absolutely why. Yes, why? Well, we have so many things in healthcare that are uh, a lot more difficult than they need to be, and and why we do that is because we have, in fact a pretense that we have a free market system. It's not a free market system. It does not satisfy the qualities of the definition of free market. And so one of the reasons is because it's, it's what we have is we have private industry acting in a public good manner. So that's one of the reasons that it is so difficult, mm -hmm. is because we're, um, we're half private, we're half public, and we're trying to pretend as if we're serving uh, or fulfilling a public good. It's really mixed goods. Right. It's not private, it's not public, it's mixed. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the reason that it is so complex. Right. You said you've been part of MGMA for a number of years. And yes. It's helped you. And one of the biggest themes of MGMA is, quote, the business of healthcare. Yes. Are, do medical practices, are they, are they run truly like a business? We're talking about the business of healthcare, or are there just too many outside forces that well, don't allow them to be able to well, do that? Well, see, and that, that is, again, one of the reasons I have been enthusiastic about healthcare sure. for so long is because of that complexity. Mm -hmm. So there are certain pieces that have to run like a business. Mm -hmm. But then there's also that part that you say, whoa, we're in a service industry. So yes, we have a business to run, but we're also in a service industry. So you have to really straddle between the, the it's a pure business and, and, and it's a service industry. And so you really have to, I mean, if you don't have the, the, the money drives, the, drives your mission. Of course. So if you can't make the money in your business, you cannot continue to be in business. How do you find that balance then? Well, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> if it were, it's, then it, we wouldn't be exactly, having this discussion. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually quite difficult to mm -hmm. do that. And so we really have to always be concentrating on outcomes 
and outcomes are um, particularly important for staying in business um, and, and with our payment methodology that is ever-changing. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things in, in outcomes is we cannot improve outcomes stati statistically. And we're always measuring the United States outcomes with other countries, mm -hmm. which is really unfair because other countries all have universal care. We don't. And uh, until we have universal care, we're really not going to improve outcomes statistically. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a it's an unfair um, measurement, really. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now we actually have a, a question from the audience. We're, okay. we're coming up close to time, and I want to definitely okay. get this in. This sure. is from Carol, who's asked. What are your thoughts about burnout in this field? Oh, wow. <laughs> we don't have two hours, Carol. I'm sorry. <laughs> because truthfully, right. I, I could talk about burnout with physicians. Mm -hmm. Physician burnout is huge. There have been many, many studies done about burnout. And with our own people mm -hmm. who are medical practice executives, we have a high rate of burnout. Uh, we have a high rate of burnout, and we also have a real problem with the with um, executives being able to keep their job. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been fortunate because I've worked with a wonderful group, and so I have been able to stay in the same setting and expanding my life, doing right. counseling, doing doing um, consulting, and mm -hmm. and many things. But burnout for us is very, very in our face right. because we are not the people who are, we're, we're in a position where we have to act as if it is our own business, yet we own nothing right. in the business. And that's a very different and difficult thing sure. um, to deal with. So I think that we have to do all of those things that we have to exercise, right. we have to meditate, we have to, sure. we have to do all those well, things that we have to take care of ourselves. Yeah. And, and one thing you told us right before we started recording that you just flew in from New Zealand. Yes, so absolutely. you have to find those other passions not only about your work but outside absolutely. of that. Absolutely, and one of my passions is travel. <laughs> I've been to all seven continents wow. uh, more than once, and, except for Australia. I've only been there one time. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I love to travel yeah. and that is one of my passions and so I make sure that I have time to travel mm -hmm. uh, but you have to do those things you have to find out what it is that feeds me exactly. and you have to take care of yourself it's kind of like you know on the airplane if you have a child you have to put the seatbelt on yourself first and then take care of the child right. and so we have to take care of ourselves because if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't take care of the whole universe of people, physicians, staff, and patients right. that we have to take care of. Right. So that's not really a satisfactory answer, Carol, but you, you just, you've got to work at it for yourself. Well, and I think it is, though, because you're finding that there's, you're looking for purpose and meaning and passion in mm -hmm. the job itself, but then outside of it as well, and That's finding right. that balance, because yes. without that, 
burnout is inevitable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, it is. So I just want to thank you again for joining us today at MGMA Live and also congratulating you. This is a well-deserved Lifetime Achievement Award, and thank you so much. You're welcome. If I could say one more thing, sure I'm going to encourage every person to really follow the tenets that I have followed in my career. And you can't be perfect at, at these things, but I've tried very hard to be trustworthy and never ever lie to your physicians, even when it doesn't uh, put you in a good light, always tell them the truth. Make sure you have the courage to call a situation like it is, whether it's with physicians or whether it is with staff. You got the shine, shine a light of day on issues. Right. And so you have to do that. And so I would uh, really encourage people to work toward that and to always be ethical. And sometimes it might cost you your job. Mm -hmm. But when you're that person, there are always jobs out there for you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely, and thank you. Thanks to our guests, Javon Bay, Matthew Rigdon, and Sarah Holt. These three are perfect examples of everyday MGMA members making significant impacts on the healthcare industry. Do you fit that same bill or know a member who does? Then visit mgma.com awards. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays.